Welcome to Grace Church of Philly. I'm glad that many of you could be here uh, this morning. And uh, we're glad for those who are watching uh, around the world and around the city. Uh, again, it's a joy to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, to model and reflect what is taking place in heaven at this time. Before we look at the Word of God this morning, we want to take a moment to welcome our newest church members. I'm going to ask Tom and Margie McBride if you would kindly stand where you are. I'm going to ask you six questions, uh, after which you will say, I do, or we do. Uh, something like marriage vows, but a little bit different. We can do those also, too, if you would like to do them again. But six affirmations we make uh, before each other when we become members of Grace Church. So here's number one. Do you believe the Bible, consisting of the Old and New Testaments, to be the Word of God, and its doctrine of salvation to be the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope except in his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive him and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and its work to the best of your ability? And do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to uphold its purity and its peace? We welcome you joyfully, overjoyed. Please uh, take a moment after the service to uh, welcome Tom and Margie. Greet each other, the Bible says, with a holy elbow bump. Okay? So please uh, welcome them this morning. This morning we're looking in the book of James once again. Verse 12 of chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 12. We're still talking about having a joyful faith in our sovereign God who watches over us in the midst of the trials of life. This verse is going to tell us that there is both present blessedness and future reward uh, if we will persevere in the midst of trials. Listen to James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, 
he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Again, we've been looking at a text that reminds us that we have a faithful God who is with us in the midst of the trials of life. We have a God who's providentially working in the midst of those trials, and he is transforming our character. He is bringing us to maturity in Christ. We have a God who has promised to give us graciously and generously the wisdom that we need in trial to be able to live a life that will honor him and please him. We have a God who is simply looking for faith, simple faith, faith that regardless of our lack of resources or our abundance of resources, all God wants from us is faith to believe the promises that he has given us. The text we're looking at is a text that over the years has caused me some what I call theological tension when I think about it. When I think about the nature of grace, that we are saved by grace, and I think about the nature of reward, that reward seems in some people's eyes to be contrary to grace, that, that there should in the end, or there will be an end, in the end a distinction amongst believers that some are rewarded, some are not rewarded. And so this morning I will wrestle with that tension as we look at the text. But I want to remind you that verse 12 is intricately related to verses 2 and uh, 2 through 4. Uh, there are three words that tie these verses together. The, the word perseverance, uh, the word trial, and the word test. Uh, we find them in verses 2 through 4, and we find all three of those words in uh, verse 12. Perseverance, trial, and test. The tension I face is this. Since we enter the eternal kingdom solely by the grace of God, and we all believe that, there's not, a, not an iota of work that I have done that gets me into the kingdom of God. It is purely God's sovereign, powerful, saving grace. But when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, having been saved by grace, what is that judgment seat? Is it some kind of what some might describe as an egalitarian, socialistic judgment seat, where everybody equally, regardless of how they have lived out their faith, regardless of how they have responded to the grace of God, everybody is rewarded in the same way. Is that what happens at the judgment seat? The tension is this. 
On one hand, I want to guard the Bible's teaching of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the promise of God's word alone. Eternal life is a gift, not merited by any human work. Salvation is of God. It's what we call theologically monergism, which is actually a Greek word. It means there's one working in salvation, and that is God. God saves us. But on the other hand, does my response to grace matter? Does the Bible teach such a thing as responsibility, accountability, and reward? Though salvation is monergistic, it is one working. God saves us. Is living out the Christian life only God's work, or is it what we would call synergistic? Is there a participation, a cooperation of myself in the work of God in my life that brings about sanctification? And as I read the word of God, I would say, yes, the Bible teaches accountability, responsibility, and reward. That I can receive the grace of God and receive it in vain. Now there are different ways that believers attempt to resolve that tension between salvation by grace and yet reward that is based upon responsibility, accountability, and reward. Some would say this, that because we're saved by grace, then Everything else about the Christian life is grace alone. Our works here essentially do not matter when you stand before God. Some would say that. Others would say, and this is more in Catholicism and in some of what we would call the new perspective, they would say that your final justification before God is your works. So they would say, yes, your works do matter because in the end, God will measure your works to see if they exhibit the grace of God in your life. Your final declaration of being right with God depends upon how you live your life. Now, obviously, we would disagree with that. The third way of approaching it is the way that I would approach it. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that saving grace produces in our lives varied expressions, varied responses, and that the judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of our response to the grace of God in our life. How did I respond to the grace of God? 
Now let me unpack that this morning or unpack this verse and in so doing that talk a little bit more about the nature of reward. But the first thing I want to remind us of in this text is that James is affirming that trials are opportunities. He, he told us that in the beginning, that this is an occasion for joy, that it's the trying of your faith, God is testing you. And here he reminds us again that this is a proof of your faith that remaining steadfast under trial and when we have stood the test, when we have passed the test. So trials are testing our faith, but James 1.12 adds something else. It's also testing our love because the end of the verse says that this reward is for those who are constantly loving the Lord. And it's no surprise that James brings together both faith and love because they coexist. They cannot exist without each other. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 5. He said, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any power, has any spiritual effect. What really matters, he says, is faith that is constantly working through love. This is what God is looking for. There's no outward deed that you can do to bring, bring glory to God, to please God. Paul says it is faith that is working through love. It is always connected to love. Some would say that love is the fruit of is the root of faith as well as the fruit of faith. We believe in God because we love him. His goodness has led us to repentance. And so we believe in him. We have faith because we love him. And because we believe him and we have his word, we keep on loving him. It's faith that is constantly working through love. Perseverance or trials are testing the perseverance of our faith. They're proving our faith. They are testing our love. I remind you that James 1.12 as well as verses 2 through 4 use both Greek words uh, that are found in the Bible that talk about trial. The one Greek word is the general word, perus mas, which simply talks about trials in general. And if you remember, I distinguish the kinds of trials that we face in life. I talked about ordinary trials and extraordinary trials. And that's that first Greek word. It refers to the trials of life. Some of some of them are ordinary. You have trials because you're human and you live in a fallen world. To which Paul says there has no trial, no pay, mas, no trial that has taken you, but such as is common to man. These are human things and God's faithful. He'll always make a way out of those everyday human trials of life. 
But then Peter talks a lot, especially 1 Peter chapter 4, about those extraordinary trials of life. Those trials of life that come upon us because of the name of Jesus Christ. I love that song we sing. I always look forward to that, to that part where we, where we sing about the name Jesus, Jesus. Today you're put on the spot in many places in American cities. If you won't say the name George Floyd, And anybody with conscience, anybody with a love for Christ, feels that compassion, that sympathy, that, that, that anger, that any human being should die like that. But to be honest, I'm not compelled. If put on the spot, name the name, I would refuse. Because I don't believe there's power in that name to overcome injustice. But I do believe, and I long for the day, when crowds of thousands will proclaim as they fight the sin and evil of this world, they will proclaim the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But it's that name that will bring those extraordinary trials of life. Peter calls them fiery trials. Because as passionate as you and I may be about the name of Jesus, there are evil people out there who are just as passionate in their hatred of the name of Jesus. But James says, you are blessed when you remain steadfast in the midst of trial. There's a present blessedness. Now, don't misunderstand, James. If you are in Christ, then Paul says you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Every believer is blessed in Jesus Christ. But he's here talking about a blessing. Uh, extraordinary blessing and extra blessing still in Christ because it's the grace of Christ that brings it about but it's a blessing because you are remaining steadfast in the midst of the trials of life you continue to believe the promises of God you continue to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And James says there is a present blessedness to the man who will be steadfast under trial. It's the same word that's used 
in the Beatitudes where Jesus talks about the one who is blessed. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it would be the same word that would be used to translate Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man who does not walk according to the counsel of the ungodly, etc. There's a blessedness for the one who will persevere in the midst of trial. Paul spoke of this extraordinary, let me say deeper experience of the grace of God. Peter tells us in 2 Peter that we should grow in the grace of God, that, that, it, that it's something that's so, so magnificent that you can experience it in a deeper way, that there's a blessing, James says, that is reserved for those who endure, who are steadfast in the midst of trial. Paul spoke about this deeper experience of the grace of God in the midst of trial. Remember, when he asked God three times to take away the affliction that he had, this thorn in the flesh, three times he says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I don't want to suffer. And we all know that verse, and we should know it, and should hold on to it. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness, with insults, with hardship, with persecution, with calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. I experience something more of God in the midst of trial when I look to him and depend upon his grace. The New Testament is full of the reality that you can grow in your understanding of the grace of God. You can grow in your experience of the grace of God. If you read the prayers of Paul, he is praying this into the lives of believers, that they would know more the love of God, they would know more of the riches that they have in Christ Jesus. There is a present blessedness for those who persevere in faith, who persevere in love, they will enjoy a deeper experience of the presence of God. But it's not only present, James says. It is linked to future reward. Be steadfast in trial for those who have stood the test they will be rewarded with they will be given a crown of life the writer of Hebrews says something different or similar to uh, those believers who are suffering 
He says, therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and the one who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to destruction, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. We are blessed by experiencing the grace of God in, in even deeper ways, but we are blessed also because we know that God rewards those who are steadfast, who pass the test in the midst of trial. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, in this, you greatly rejoice, that is, in the great salvation you have in Christ, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perish, perishes even though refined by fire, your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The question that God is asking during trial and at the end of trial isn't simply Am I persevering? Have I stood the test? Yes, he's asking those questions. But the real question is, do I believe the promises of God? Do I continue to love God supremely with all my heart and soul and mind and strength? Because what God wants for us in trial is never failure. God is never bringing us to that difficult point in life so that he can defeat us and destroy us. I remember a number of years ago when my brother Jim and I got our first Harley Davidsons. And we figured that even though we thought we knew how to ride, we should take a rider's safety course. And so we both did, and we sat for hours in classes uh, learning about the, the physics of riding a motorcycle. And at the end of the uh, classroom part of the course, they gave you a 20-question test, which you had to pass in order to go on to the actual driving part of the course. And so the instructor came in, gave us our sheets of paper, our, our answer sheets, and he said, all right, question, this is question number one, and he read the question. And these are the four possible answers to that question, and he read them. And then he said, which answer, there are about 20 of us in class, which answer do you think is right? And we all talked about it, and we concluded that 
Only one of them was the right answer. And he said, that's correct, put that down. And he did that for all 20 questions because his interest was not in failing anybody. His interest was that everybody would succeed. And that's God's interest in your life. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1 that God has given us all things that are necessary for life and for godliness. God has given us all that we need so that we do not fail, not even in the midst of trial, that we will persevere, we'll keep believing his promises, we will keep loving him. Whereas on the other hand, Satan is always in the midst of your trial, trying to get you to fail. Later, James will tell us you can be sure that if in the midst of your trial, you are tempted to do what is evil and what is wrong, God is not the source of that. Because God does not want you to fail. He saved you to have a life that matters for eternity. There is a future reward for perseverance. And even though we may not fully comprehend what it is, what it looks like as we try to think of it in tangible, physical, earthly ways, we do not comprehend it. Nevertheless, James says, you will be given a crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who constantly love him. Now that phrase itself, which the Lord has promised, raises a question because if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you don't find any reference in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John about a crown of life. Though later we do know in Revelation, uh, I believe it's chapter 2, maybe it's 3, where uh, Jesus is speaking to the church of Smyrna, the suffering church. There he tells them that the reward for their faithfulness is a crown of life. So perhaps it's an unrecorded saying of Jesus. Or maybe it's rooted in Matthew chapter 5, 11, and 12, where Jesus says that those who are faithful in persecution will be rewarded someday. But nevertheless, James calls it a crown of life which is promised to those who love him. Now, what is this crown of life? Again, some would say, well, it's eternal life. So everybody gets it. But if that's true, if the crown of life is eternal life, then you are rewarded it because you are faithful, you are steadfast, you, you pass the test of perseverance, which then makes salvation not of grace, eternal life, not a gift. So it cannot be that it is simply 
uh, another way of saying, I give you uh, eternal life because you're a believer and all believers persevere uh, to the end and everybody gets this gift at the end. The crown of life. Some have called this the martyr's crown because of uh, its reference to the church of Smyrna where many were martyred. As you know, the Greek word for martyr is simply the word witness. And uh, a martyr, as we understand it, is one who ultimately gives his life as a witness for Jesus Christ. Someone described it this way, I like the description, that a martyr is one who lives his life to witness for Christ, and perhaps dies his, gives his life as a witness to Christ, but all the time never complains about being a witness for Christ. A martyr is a witness, but ultimately a witness who died. Stephen, perhaps the first Christian martyr who receives the crown of life. I think of the Bohemian reformer John Huss, who believed the scripture so strongly, believed in its infallibility and its supreme authority, that when he was going to be burnt at the stake in constant Germany on his 42nd birthday, he was told to renounce his faith. And his final words, Huss's last words were this, what I taught with my lips, I seal with my blood. What I taught with my lips, I seal with my blood. Whatever you're facing today, whatever difficulty you may be struggling with in your life, God wants you to be faithful and he wants you to uphold the name of Jesus Christ that he will be glorified. And James says, a crown of life will be given to you. Again, some have a problem with that because of their understanding of grace. They somehow envision a father like God who will say to each of his children or some of his children someday, say that God does not care about how you respond to his love. John, the Apostle John, seemed to think that it, mat it matters how we live our lives here. John put it this way in 1 John 2.28, he says, And now, little children, abide in Christ. Live in faithful union 
life-sustaining union with Christ so that when he appears, you may not be ashamed before him at his coming. Some would say that the wiping away of all tears which we long for, those tears of regret, those tears of sadness, those tears of repentance, that the wiping away of all tears follows the judgment seat of Christ. Because John says there's a possibility that, that if we don't respond to, that if we don't live out faithfully in our union with Jesus Christ, if we're not abiding in him, as John 15 talks about, we may be ashamed before him at his coming. Some would argue that if heaven will be a place of perfect joy for everyone, then how can there be differences in reward? How can God make a distinction between the efforts and works of believers and there still be perfect joy for everyone? And my response is, can there not be both the eternal joy of salvation in Christ that everyone in Christ experiences forever? Can you not have that? And there, can there not be an additional joy that no way detracts from any joy that someone else has? But can there not be an additional joy of hearing your father say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Jonathan Edwards at length discusses whether there are eternal distinctions or degrees of reward. And he explained it with this simple illustra illustration. He talks about our capacity to experience joy. And he says this, he said, regardless of what size the vessel is that is cast into the ocean, it is filled according to its capacity. So someone has a larger capacity for joy. It's full joy. Someone has a lesser capacity. He's simply saying that fullness of joy everybody will experience, though some's capacity for joy is greater because of their faithfulness to the Lord in serving him throughout their life. As I read the New Testament, I can't get away from the biblical implications 
that there are future ramifications and consequences to how I respond to God's grace in my daily life. Second Corinthians 5 puts it this way, verse 9 and 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. This is Paul talking. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says we're going to give an account. Our, our life matters. Yes, you're saved by grace, and you will have the eternal joy of salvation in heaven, but your life matters, and you will stand before God and give an account of what you did with the grace that you received and the grace that God offered you every day from that time that you became his child. How did you respond to grace? The text that Theodore read for us this morning. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only as through the fire. The judgment seat of Christ, which is in our future, reminds us that in Christ I am called not only to receive his gift of grace, but to respond to his gift of grace. It is a call to righteousness. It's a call to service. It's not, it is never an excuse for sin and for laziness in our Christian lives. And James reminds us that the proper motivation in persevering is always rooted in a love for God, a deep love for God. For God, that this gift is for those who are constantly loving Him. And as I look at my own life, I'm fully aware that the trials, the temptations of life, test the reality, the genuineness, the strength the perseverance of my love for Jesus Christ. Because the biggest question always in times of trial and testing is how much do I really love Christ? Because it's the love of Christ that will bring me, as Jesus said, to obedience. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
But the trials of life are always challenging my love for Jesus Christ. Say, well, all believers love Christ. Well, in some sense, that is true. All believers love Christ and believe in Christ. But do all believers love Christ in the same way? And by the way, this is not a competition. I love Jesus more than you love Jesus because look at what I do. If you think that way, then it's probably not love of Jesus that motivates what you do. If competition in any sense enters your mind, because as I understand it, those who truly seek to love God are most aware of their deficiency of love. They're, they're, they're never aware of their superiority of love. I want to love God, but I look at my own heart and I know how much I fail at that. I would never boast of the perfection and superiority of my love. While I would say that those who are boastful of their greatness of effort and their greatness of love for God, they probably, they definitely lack the humility that is necessary for love to grow out of. Because the root of true love is humility. If you're truly loving God, then I would say you are fighting for that love. You are struggling with that love. You are aware of the failures of that love. But you want that love. You want to love God and respond to his grace. Paul says, I did. He said, I responded to the grace of God more than the other disciples did. But then he says, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God working in my life. Even though I can see that I've done more, I'm aware that I've only done more by the grace of God. I take no credit for it. But he did do more. And then he talks about, in 2 Corinthians 6, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 2, about their not receiving the word of God in vain, without any effect. No, grace is meant to affect our lives, to profoundly affect us, to cause us to believe, to cause us to love, so that in the midst of trials, we keep crying out the name Jesus, that we will glorify him in the midst of those trials. All the while we are deeply aware that we love him because he first loved us.
We love him because we've experienced his love. And the more we understand that, the more we love him more, and the more we want to obey, and the more we want to do. And when trials come our way, we'll hold fast, we'll keep believing and keep loving. And James says, when you've stood the test, when you are holding on, you experience a present blessedness. A deeper experience of the grace of God in your life. And he says, God has something special for you someday. And if it's only well done, good and faithful servant, that's enough. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for grace. Saving grace that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are adopted, accepted forever. Thank you for life-changing grace, for sustaining grace, for grace to serve. Grace that enables us to live lives that are pleasing to you. God, I pray that we would not be a people who receive your grace in vain, who take it for granted, who live lives of sin and lives of sloth because we don't value what you have done for us in Christ. Forgive us, Father, for not seeing the greatness of your love and for not responding more deeply and powerfully to the love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. Help us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.